0: Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Luke Holloway, editor of The Journal. In this episode, I'll be talking to Roger Flaxman and Melissa Collett. In this episode of the podcast, we're discussing actions insurers can take to increase trust in the insurance profession. And we're joined by Roger Flaxman, Executive Chairman of Flaxman's and winner of the 2020 Building Public Trust Consumer Champion Award, and Melissa Collett, Professional Standards Director at the Chartered Insurance Institute. To find out more about this podcast and for useful links, go to thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Here's our conversation with Roger and Melissa. So hello, Roger, and hello, Melissa, and thank you very much for speaking to us today on CII Radio. Good morning.
1: Hello, Luke.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today. So, Melissa, if we could begin with you, why is it so important for insurers to take proactive steps to improving trust in the insurance profession?
1: Thanks, Luke. I'm really pleased to be able to join this podcast because it's such an important subject at the moment with all the media surrounding uh, the insurance reaction to business interruption test case, and there's so many other situations at the moment that are bringing the insurance sector into the public gaze. So it's incredibly important that insurers and the sector as a whole promotes trust amongst its customers. And I think this goes back to the whole social value of insurance. I mean, insurance has such a key purpose in our society, which is pooling the risks of the many to help the few in times of need. And I mean, there's never been a more important time for insurance. And I think that the importance here is that given the purpose is it corporate purpose is so important. It's a sort of buzzword at the moment. And yet insurance already has that built into what it does every day. So why aren't we getting that across to customers? What is the barrier there? And I I really like to explore that a bit more in the podcast today. But what I'd like to um, say is that the CII's measures the levels of public trust and insurance using its public trust index. And it started that in 2018 to actually benchmark levels of trust. And we can look at those levels. We recently measured it in September and prior to that in May. So we can see that levels of trust have fallen slightly under the lockdown and we can examine the reasons behind that in just a moment.
0: Absolutely and Roger how would you build on that and talk about kind of some of the, the steps that insurers can take to build trust both on a day-to-day basis but also more long-term as well?
2: Well Luke I think the most important thing here is we've got to first of all agree what the problem is before we can build on anything we've got to know what we're building on or building against. The way I look at it I mean I, I absolutely agree with what Melissa has just said in insurance is an economic necessity in modern life. And, you know, funnily enough, the COVID saga, as we might call it, has proven that in spades, how much people depend on insurance, not just in business interruption. You know, I've got dozens and dozens of claims coming out of other areas of insurance, a lot in the travel industry as well. And the insurance industry is simply, uh, largely, it's, it's finding ways to say, well, we didn't expect to pay this, so we won't. And it's causing a huge amount of problem for the insuring public. And I think the first point is that, we must understand as an industry that most households and indeed most businesses simply haven't got the financial wherewithal to pay for cost of losses or damage if they don't have insurance. You know, We live in a time now where banks are certainly not going to help you when you're in trouble. And if you don't have insurance, you can be in serious, serious trouble. And I can give, as probably Melissa knows, oodles of anecdotes of real cases where this is happening right under our nose at the moment. But the fundamental point is if the public cannot trust the industry, they'll try to cheat it. And they know that they have to have insurance in some cases, and they'll do anything they can to get it on their terms. One of the problems that the industry, I think, has developed over years, particularly, and i probably say this more than once, particularly since the digitalization of insurance, where actually the industry is moving all the time further away from the customer. One of the problems is that in order to uh, manage that minority that might want to cheat the insurance industry, the majority are often treated as though they may be a criminal. And that is a real issue. In fact, I had a case only this morning where exactly that's happened on a travel repatriation thing. And this lady's husband's died because she gave the wrong answer over the phone from Brazil. And this is serious stuff. Now, those that don't stoop to cheating, and which of course is the majority, will nevertheless mistrust everything that an insurance company says if the general view abroad is you can't trust insurance companies and I read I think it was yesterday you'll probably know this better than I but I think the FCA have just come out just done a survey and they found that public trust has dipped to the extent there's some somewhere between 30 and 50 percent of those interviewed said they no longer trust the insurance industry so your question is what can you do about it well it's not just a question of paying claims because the Somebody who was advertising the other day, we've paid 75% of our COVID-related claims. Now, that actually isn't news. It might be if you're on the inside of the insurance industry. But if you're on the outside, well, the question is, well, why wouldn't you be paying 75% of claims? That's the question or even, as some people say, 90% or 99%. I don't think the public are persuaded about the integrity of the industry by adverts of the number of claims they pay. What matters is how people are treated at the time of a claim when they are being interviewed by loss adjusters in particular. There's a big issue at the moment going on in the industry about the treatment of policyholders in the flood zones, who still haven't got their hands back, the treatment by the loss adjusters, who, of course, are engaged by the insurers. So my fundamental thing is that if the industry wants to flourish, it has got to get customer loyalty. And it will only retain that customer loyalty if it actually re-engages with the customer. And you can't do that remotely
0: technology. Absolutely. Uh, as you say, Roger, I mean, the, the experience that customers and the, the general public have at that point of claim is is obviously incredibly important. Melissa, I mean you spoke about this barrier that is there. Why do you think it is so hard to get across to the public the good work that the insurance profession does? As, as Roger mentioned there, you know, we see these adverts from major insurers, you know, um advertising they pay 99% of claims and it, it is incredibly positive numbers. But yeah, it doesn't seem to have that effect. And there are obviously a lot more of other factors to consider. Why do you think it is so hard to get across the, the good work that the insurance profession does?
1: I think that it's important to frame these conversations with data. I think we might have a general impression that everybody's unhappy with everything, around insurance, but actually the data doesn't entirely bear that out or or bear it out at all. I mentioned earlier our public trust index, which we've been running for the past three years on a quarterly basis. And what the recent survey, which is of a thousand customers and small and medium-sized enterprises, what it demonstrates is that 82% of SMEs were satisfied with the service they'd received from their insurer. That was in 2019. Then we took the survey again last year during the pandemic, and that figure fell by 3% to 79% of businesses were satisfied with the service they'd received from their insurer post-lockdown. Now, you might want to dwell on the fact that it had fallen by 3% but it's still at the 79% mark. So we can debate whether 79% is good enough, but I would say that it does show you that the majority of businesses, I'm just focusing on businesses for the moment, were satisfied with their service. So that's the data that we have. So I think we need to bear that in mind. I haven't seen the data that Roger referred to from the FCA just yet, but I will have a look at that. But I think that Roger mentions that people aren't swayed by insurers advertising the fact that they pay 99 of claims, and I think what he's driving at there is that customers, of course, expect insurers to pay claims, so it's 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 not news. But I think that there is a good reason for that kind of message because if you do if you look at surveys, a number of surveys that I've seen show that about customers feel that insurers pay something like 20% of claims, you know, a really, really small number. And so if the message gets out there that actually 99% of claims are paid, contrary to popular opinion, that might actually go some way towards building trust.
0: Absolutely. Um, And something you've both touched on so far, and which is obviously impossible to ignore, is the the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the situation in the UK and, and internationally in the last 12 months. Roger, what effect do you think that the last year has had on public trust in insurance and how can insurers look to rebuild any reputational damage as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully?
2: Let's just go back to the point Melissa makes, because this is the root of the problem. If it is all right to say that between 79 and 82 percent of claims being paid is good enough, then you could argue that the insurance industry hasn't got a problem with the 20% or so, 20 to 30% that don't get paid. You could argue that.
1: Sorry, Roger, I should jump in there and say that was percent of small businesses who were satisfied with the service they had received.
2: Yeah, well, okay, that's a slightly different thing.
1: So I don't think that's necessarily correlates to claims paid.
2: No, okay, well, that's that's a good point. But I think the point is, if we are talking about customer dissatisfaction and if we say, well, actually, 80 percent of customers are satisfied, but 20 percent aren't, then the question is, what does the industry need to do to satisfy the other 20 percent? That question leads to well, is what is not being satisfied by that 20% worth dealing with at all? Now, my personal opinion is in some cases it is because some people have been very badly treated by the industry. In some cases, Actually, the industry is right, because not every claim is a valid claim, undoubtedly. But the COVID situation, I think, has presented us something which, in retrospect, I think we probably wish we'd never seen, which was a number of insurers swearing that black is white as far as what their policies are saying, going to not only the court but the Supreme Court and being told by both we are completely wrong. And what that does is to say to a lot of people, I'm I'm dealing with these every day, these people, how do we now know whether the words in the insurance policy mean anything at all, such that we can put a value on it? And the answer is, well, (laughs) for a while we're not going to know. Because a lot of those policies have been, if you like, tried and tested for some 30 or 40 years. Big insurers with big names have said, this is what we mean by these words in the policy. And they've been, if you like, trumped by the courts. who said, well, we don't think that's reasonable. It doesn't fare. And in fact, the word is fanciful. How on earth can you imagine that to be the case? Another point that was made was, how do you expect the ordinary person policyholder to read and understand a 93-page policy of insurance? So... The problem we've got is that that news is now out there. And one of the questions is how many people will read it? In the industry, we're acutely aware of it. How many Daily Mail readers, shall we say, will be aware of or care about what I've just said? Most people don't like buying insurance. They don't want to buy it. They are pressed by the media to pay as little for it as possible. The media don't talk about value. They talk about price. So in all of those situations, we've got a case where the industry can say, Well, we can carry on doing more or less what we're what we've done before, because we can always go back to the courts and reevaluate our policy wording if we have to. So you could ask, what is the incentive of the industry to change?
0: Yes, certainly, um, communication with, with the public is a, is a huge factor, and, and also transparency. Melissa, you're involved in the recently formed Chartered Transparency Forum. Can you tell us a bit about that and um, some of the work that the, the forum aims to do?
1: Yes, uh, what the BI test case prompted the CII to look at ways of addressing some of the issues surrounding that case. And transparency of policy wordings is obviously one of the key issues that that case was examining. And so what the CII did was set up a forum of practitioners, representatives from the key trade bodies, legal representatives and a consumer representative to work together to look at ways and forming some guidance for insurance professionals on how to improve transparency. And this was published in December last year, and it's called Transparency and Insurance, a companion guide to the CII's code of ethics. So it's designed to really take the CII's professional code of ethics, which all of its professional members are obliged to sign up to when they join and it's looking at transparency through that lens and making some recommendations of what steps individuals can take with working within their insurance companies or brokers where they work and to really try and improve customer understanding of insurance cover and one of the key recommendations made is that the reading age of policies and all the documentation around insurance be lower to 13. That would be the upper limit for wordings and material. And I think this is something that is really gaining ground now because Lloyd's also has been conducting some work and it's published a report called Building Simpler Insurance Products And it also recommends lowering the reading age to 13. And and this is because we're all working online and we have access to Word and other programs. It's very easy, actually, to just check the reading age of what you're producing. And these software is available that does a quick check and tells you where you need to make shorter sentences, take out jargon, and just improve overall readability so people can understand what they're buying. And this is so important when the average reading age in the UK is around 13. I mean, there is a good chunk of the population whose reading age is even lower, but if the starting point is having a reading age of 13, I think that will go some way towards improving the understandability of insurance.
0: And Roger, what are your thoughts uh, around simplifying policy wordings, making them easier to understand for the public and hopefully building you know, trust in the products that people are buying?
2: Well, I'm old enough to remember when the plain English policy was first introduced by Hiscox, curiously, and it must be 25 years ago or so. And there's somebody who reads policies you know, every day of the week Even the plain English policies, by definition, need to be fairly fulsome in order to constrain the breadth and the depth of the policies that are being offered. And to be frank, I don't think that changing the words in the policy or making the reading age itself, I mean, it's a a helpful thing to do, and I'm not going to deny that. It's helpful. But the real issue about insurance claims is very simple. If a reasonable person thinks they've got insurance for an ordinary claim, then actually the best thing that the insurance industry can do to prove its value and this integrity, is to use good faith. Now, the expression good faith has gone completely out of fashion. It started going out of fashion in the 80s. I can almost pinpoint when and why, about 1986. But the point about it is that you don't need complicated words if the good faith of the insurance contract is uppermost. In other words, you should pay a claim, and you should pay it reasonably quickly, And fairly, unless there's a clear exclusion, a clear breach of a condition, or there's dishonesty or fraud. But otherwise, the fundamental purpose of insurance is we're there to take the gamble on you having a loss. And if you do, we'll see you right. Now, that is not the culture of the industry in the last 30 years. And the problem is that there is more anecdotal evidence than we want really around in the market of people saying brokers, I'll tell you this very easily, a lot of customers, underwriters, or or, or if you like, loss adjusters, or those parties that are incentivized by the insurer to keep the cost of claims down, those parties will often spend a lot of time looking for clever ways of cutting down a claim or removing it. Now, I'm saying that bearing in mind that in the press, only this week, people are talking of the way that some insurers are reading down the court judgments. Why do the insurers want to do that? After all they've been through, why do they want to make it worse? So I think that the most important thing that the insurance industry can do is to use the several thousand extremely good, competent intermediaries who are out in the regions, out in the world there, representing our industry. Let them be able to sing good faith from the rooftops and expect the insurers to back them up. There's one last thing I'd like to say about that particular issue is that it is wrong, in my opinion, for an insurer to suggest to a customer that they are partners. They're not. They're the opposite side of a bargain. You cannot partner with your insured. And that, I think, is a misrepresentation that we should stop the industry doing and just say our relationship with you as an insurer is if you've got a bona fide claim unless it's excluded or it's a clear breach or you've been dishonest fundamentally we want to find a way to pay it and that is the industry that I grew up in
0: in the 1970s. Excellent. Thank you, Roger. Some very interesting points there. Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about the recent partnership between the CII and Lloyds regarding the Chartered Underwriting title? How is that aimed at improving professional standards and and how does that link to trust?
1: Yes. So I mentioned earlier that Lloyds has been doing some work around building simpler insurance products. And I think it acknowledges really a lot of the points that Rogers made around good faith or, I mean, there are lots of ways of expressing it. I I would say it's about closing the expectation gap between what customers think they're buying and and what insurers are offering to cover. So, you know, that's really one of the key things that we need to do in the wake of the BI test case. And So I mentioned that Lloyd's has been doing some work on this. The CII itself has published a transparency companion. And we've really been noticing recently how much in common we have with Lloyd's in terms of wanting to align the expectations we have of the sector and their professional standards. And so we have our chartered titles at the CII, which represent a badge of quality of professionalism for both chartered individuals and chartered firms. And we recently launched a new title for managing general agents who really comprise a growing and and large part of the insurance sector. They're neither insurers nor brokers, and yet they transact a significant amount of business at Lloyd's and elsewhere. So what we've done this year is to, it's a historic change actually, is because we've actually are going to align our standards with Lloyd's standards for cover holders. So those cover holders who are approved to transact business at Lloyd's are going to be asked whether they are chartered and that's going to lead to much greater synergy between the firms that Lloyd's approves and the firms that we award chartered status to. And I'm I'm really, really proud of this work and excited uh, for the future because I think it could only serve to encourage more professionalism of the market. And if I could just sort of uh, explain this a little bit further and why it's important. Roger touched on a whole number of issues around the hollowing out of cover and how do we do we get to, into this mess in the first place with this lack of trust and it's because i think insurance has been all about driving down price making insurance a transaction a commodity rather than something where advice is sought and given and where, you know, there's a, a professional behind that advice, standing behind that advice. So I think if we could encourage quality of insurance products and of insurance firms and businesses, if we can move the dial and focus on quality rather than price, focus on professionalism rather than just commission and getting everything through the door as quickly as possible, then I think we would really turn the dial on this sector and make it a much more trusted sector.
0: Absolutely. And Roger, if I could ask you for any final thoughts on the subject. Well,
2: I think that what Melissa says there is absolutely right in many ways. But let's just go back and have a look at what she started off by saying is closing the expectation gap. If you look at business interruption insurance and you say to a customer, uh, I'm talking about whether you're an insurer or a seller of insurance, you say to the customer, I think you ought to have business interruption insurance, and you persuade them. Well, what does it cover? Well, it covers interruption to your business. Now, what we know from this case is it doesn't. That's the problem. It covers it conditionally on such thin, flimsy, grounds that when you look at it, actually what is in the can is not what is on the can. And I don't believe that we're going to change from that in a hurry because what Melissa just said in the last part of her remark was actually it concentrates on price. Of course, if you keep on reducing the price of insurance, down to the lowest bargain basement, then of course you can't give the breadth of cover. Of course you can't. But the industry has suffered, if you like, from doing that because the industry doesn't know any other way to sell its products. And the problem is it's all very well saying we've got to be more professional and we've got to sell on value. But the truth is nobody knows how to do it. Because you can't persuade members of the public that there is any value in a policy of insurance, which is something they don't want to buy, they don't want to pay for, and they don't think they're ever going to have a claim. Now, to overcome that, you've got to do a lot more than change policy wordings and change professionalism within the industry. What I would like to see is much more, if you like, the equivalent of public information films about insurance and why it's an economic necessity and get it out in the public domain. But Melissa and I, I think, are very much on the same page about most things. In fact, I think we are, full, full stop. The problem that I think we need to address is how we do these things, because what I would say, one of the biggest problems for the industry is it's hampered, very seriously hampered, by its inability to speak with a single voice or anything close to it. And one of the reasons for that, and I don't know how many people know this, but Competition law made an enormous change to the insurance industry when it was first mooted back in the 80s, I think it was. And insurance is exactly as Melissa said right at the beginning. It's the sharing of the losses of a few amongst the many. That actually spells out the word community. Insurance is actually a community of interest. And everybody in the community, take the British Isles at the moment, there's virtually nobody in the British Isles that is not going to be affected in some way by what's happened with COVID, and many of them are depending on insurances one way or another to get them through. It's a community of interest. Now, if you're running a community of interest, the people that are taking the risk in that community really need to be able to talk to each other and share. And let's just take, go back to the FCA case, because I think it's, so, it's such a dynamic example of what's wrong. Look at the number of policy wordings that there are, apparently saying we insure you for business interruption, but they're all different. Very different, in fact, so different that some cover the loss and some don't. But they all say they cover business interruption. And policyholders, because they're sold on price and because the insurance industry can't actually agree on what the words of a policy mean, such that whichever policy you buy, the words mean the same thing, that the court has said that is not the case. Until we can deal with things like that, then we haven't got really a prayer of really improving the community of interest of insurance to the community that buys it.
0: Thank you, Roger. And Melissa, obviously, it's an incredibly detailed and broad subject that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of factors to consider in terms of building trust in insurance. Is there is there anything you'd like to add or where you'd like to direct listeners if they'd like resources or to find out more about the subject?
1: Yes, I'd like to just conclude by commenting on what Roger just said. And yes, the policies are so different. And I think that's one of the points and recommendations in the Transparency Companion is about, you know, as far as possible, trying to create a sort of standard cover so people know, whichever insurer they go to, that they're going to have a reasonable expectation that is going to cover certain key things. So I think that that is really what the road we need to go down as insurance professionals. And I think the point I made earlier about the importance of professionalism really holds here because if insurance was truly a profession, then people would have to act in their customer's best interest. And they'd have to explain at the point of sale exactly what the policy is going to cover or the the, the key areas that are going to be covered. And so this misunderstanding that we've seen would not arise. So I would urge anyone listening to this podcast, if you really, truly want to be part of a community of professionals and not just transacting business of of a commodity, purely based on price, then stand up and be counted. Join our community of over 23,000 chartered professionals. Type CII chartered into your search engine today and find out more how to join this professional community.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Melissa. And thank you, Roger, for joining us today on CII Radio. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that information and some really insightful points made as well. So uh, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you, Luke.
0: Okay. And thank you for listening to CII Radio. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit the journal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at CII Group. So until next time, stay safe and thank you very much for listening to CII Radio.